0: You
1: ain't
0: heard nothing yet. Turn around let me my bubbles. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it, an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the I don't know who you are. Why oh, so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. Mr. denying a nap out of it. If they call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Pliny season is now unfortunately at an end. I worked nonstop and somehow it's already Saturday again. I swear I just like sat down into this yesterday. This week was just a maddening chaos blur that culminated in my check engine light coming on for some reason. Can't wait to uh, figure out what the hell is wrong with it now. But I can't afford a new car, so we, we, (laughs) we endure. This week on Movie Theatre Movie Reviews, we've got Perfect Days, Il Capitano, and Dune Part 2. First off, Perfect Days, which is nominated for Best International Picture this year, is just a beautiful, quiet film about an ordinary man in Tokyo. As the film progresses, you learn more and more about his past from those around him and realize that there is far more to him than just a mild-mannered toilet cleaner. Like I said, this film is beautiful. It's endearing. It's just lovely. It was one of my favorites that I've seen so far. Then we've got Io Capitano, which is also nominated for Best International Film and is the harrowing story of two Senegalese... Senegalese? teenagers attempting to get to Italy for a better life. Watching this film was the most stressed out I've been watching a movie since probably Zone of Interest, but it was incredible. It's beautifully shot. The story is heartbreaking and raw and powerful. And I was just overall mostly just horrified at how people can treat and exploit each other for money. I wasn't surprised by it, but I was definitely horrified by it because this film kind of depicts that very honestly and without much of a filter on it. And it's uh it's a little, it's it was a little scarring. I'm glad I saw it. If you're in LA, it's at it was at Burbank, the Burbank 16. I don't know if it's showing anywhere else, but you know, that's what Fandang goes for. And finally, Dune 2, which is the reason that I'm starting to record at 3 p.m. instead of 11 a.m. because I was up super late last night when I normally am editing this script, but instead I was watching Dune. As I mentioned all the way back in 2021, I know next to nothing about the whole Dune universe. And I wanted to go into this blind as kind of a experiment. I've got a few friends who are super into them. They haven't read all the Dunes. I know they've at least read the first Dune. They're big fans of it. I got them out in the theaters, which, you know, not always the easiest thing to do these days. If nothing else, it's, it's getting some people into the theaters that don't normally go. And for me, I just, you know, I'll never turn down an opportunity to go to the movies and now that I've seen part two and therefore the full adaptation of this book I am so confused more than anything else and this is coming from I did see the 1984 dune so I kind of knew what was going to happen like I get the lore and stuff the lore I feel like is handled incredibly well to the point where I again knew pretty much nothing but I understood like okay that's what these people do that's what these people do that's like I I got it enough I'm sure there's more nuance to it that I didn't appreciate because I haven't read the books but I got the gist I got kind of you know the so Political shtick that was going on. But the problem that I had. When the credits starting to roll was that I felt like I had just sat through counting the first part, a five and a half hour prequel to the movie that I would have actually liked to have seen, only to be told that what these films built towards this super cool, like, I don't want to spoil it, but this thing that's supposed to happen and is happening at the end of this movie is like, oh, now we're going to see the shit. And then the movie ends. And I'm like, but that was the thing that we were supposed to... That that was the thing we we're supposed to see, right? It was all building towards that. And then the credits are rolling. And then I find out, because I look over at the boys, and I'm like, so... The next one's like the the thing, right? <laughs> Trying not to spoil. And they go, no, the next book picks up after the thing is over. So there's no version, at least unless it's like a prequel thing that like the Frank, I'm blanking on his last name's son did, unless they like, that was one of the fill-in books that he did later, but I don't really think that counts. But no, the next book that like the Frank guy wrote for Dune in the original series takes place after the cool thing is over. So there's no version of it written down that exists. So I feel like I got kind of like, suckered into a five and a half hour situation to get to potentially see some cool shit and then the cool shit i found out i'm probably never gonna see on film because there's no source material for it was it a good movie yes it was now that i know what it is was it longer than it needed to be also yes would i like to have seen a payoff for all those hours very much so but that's not the story so here i am my Criterion Collection selection for this week is Spine 681, which is 2013's Frances Ha. The film stars a pre-directing Greta Gerwig in a film directed by her future husband, Noah Baumbach. I think this is the film they met on. Damn quote me on that, though. I've been sitting on this one for a while and I I really shouldn't have because it was it was very, very, very good. It was quirky. It was witty. It was sweet. Big fan. I haven't admittedly watched a ton of Noah Baumbach. The film was also very reminiscent of like French New Wave. So if that's not your thing, it's more approachable than most French New Wave, but it definitely is indicative of that style. But in like a good way, it's the fun parts of a French New Wave film. But yeah, that's that's that. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I watched it this morning. So I wouldn't, you know, cop out doings in a row. All right, a new month means new topic. And this month we're trying something a little different theme wise. I'm a little bit, I was a little bit nervous taking this on. I don't think I thought this all the way through, but we're here, we're doing it. I'm gonna challenge myself. And we're going to look at the best years of film. Like, there's always a year that someone says, oh, this year, that had the best year for movies. That year, that year had the best year for movies. So I picked, like, four of them. I didn't pick, like, four of them. I picked four of them. <laughs> and we're going to look at what were the big films, who were the big stars, the big directors, and why do people think it was the best year ever? Now, of course, this is super, super, super subjective. So we're going to deal with facts as much as we can. And at the end of this month, I'm going to to, if I remember, admittedly, I'm going to try and pick which of these four I think was actually the best year ever for film. So to kick things off, we're going to start with 1939, which is the most oft-cited best year for film ever. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. The ruby slippers, What have you done with them? Give them back to me or I'll... It's too late. There they are and there they'll stay. Give me back my slippers. I'm the only one that knows how to use them. They're no use to you. Give them back to me. Give them back! Keep tight inside of them. Their magic must be very powerful, or she wouldn't want them so badly. You stay out of this, Glinda, or I'll fix you as well. (laughs) Oh, rubbish. You have no power here. Be gone before somebody drops a house on you, too. Very well. I'll bide my time. And as for you, my fine lady, it's true. I can't attend you here and now as I'd like but just try to stay up of my way. Just try. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> All right. So there's no roadmap for this one. So I just kind of went with what feels right, and it'll probably change by the time this month is over. So let's start off by looking at the year that preceded the best year ever, 1938. Adolf Hitler was starting his full dictatorship thing of Germany, which would start with him taking direct control of the country's military, building the first concentration camps, voiding all Jewish people's passports, and by December of that year, he was named Times Man of the Year as the threat of another world war felt imminent. The Second Sino-Japanese War was raging, as had the Spanish Civil War, so the 30s were just sounding like a blast. Also, Howard Hughes had flown around the world in 91 hours, LSD was created in a lab for the first time, and the nuclear fission of uranium was discovered hearkening in the Atomic Age. So when 1939 began, there wasn't a whole lot to be thankful for. There was likely going to be a war, the Great Depression was entering its 10th year, and stateside, there were 10 million people who still couldn't find work. President Franklin D. Roosevelt promised the American people neutrality in the possible upcoming war, and collectively most Americans just tried to overall ignore it, but it was always an elephant in the room as news reached the Americas and anxieties grew. A good place to go and forget for a little bit was the movie theater, and the studios stepped up to entertain the public. By the end of 1939, of course, World War II would be raging overseas. As an omen of sorts of what was to come at the 1939 World's Fair, attendees were also given example of the capabilities of some newfangled contraption that about 10 years later would threaten the lifeblood of the Hollywood studios. But that was still a decade away. While the film industry had been dinged by the Great Depression quite a bit when it had started in late 1929, they had managed to stay in business through the lean years due to people using the movies as a cheap form of escapism. Movies at this time were an average of about 23 cents. Attendance was down from the 1920s, but still strong enough for the studios to soldier on. Theaters also used gimmicks to get people into their seats at the time, like giving out a dish each week. If attendees went enough times, they got to see a bunch of movies and ended up with a set of dishes. I would absolutely, I'm so, if I could find like a set of like movie theater dishes, like if they are they themed to the movies? Because I would totally want those. I wish they still did that. I would have so many dishes instead of just steal them from places. I don't do that. Yes, I do. 1939 was smack dab in the middle of the golden age of Hollywood, meaning that it was during the time that the studios controlled all aspects of film production, from the earliest drafts of the scripts to the theaters the films ultimately screened in. Due to the control on the market, films could be made quickly, as all the talent they required was already on contract and ready to step on the set once they were built and the costumes and props and other little things needed were acquired. Most studios had a big warehouse of things, so most of the time they just had to go into the warehouse and find the things. As such, the release schedules for studios were strict, but very exact, and ultimately this regulated the film industry. 1939 arguably represents this era at its apex. The final year of this decade also saw the studio swinging for the fences production-wise. According to famed film critic Leonard Maltin, films were bigger, they were shot on location or on the studio's expansive backlots, and the scripts were becoming edgier. It had also been a little over 10 years since sound was introduced, and a language had developed as had the microphones. Sound was a lot, 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 lot better, and it was starting to sound more like the people could potentially be in the room with you. Also, technicolor film had reached a high point, meaning color films could also be produced quite a bit more easily. So in short, the film industry was sloughing off the depression years and beginning to trend toward spectacle. For the sake of looking at the films that came out this year to prove it was the best year ever, we're going to look at the films that were nominated for Best Picture that year to start with, or to overall, that's my, like, my, my baseline for each studio, and then we're also going to look at some other highlights as well as the stars and trends at the major studios and also elsewhere. The studio that probably best represented the glamour of Hollywood's golden age, in no small part due to the rampant marketing saying that they were the best studio ever, was MGM. But between them claiming to have the brightest stars in the Hollywood sky, which was pretty accurate at this time to be fair, MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer had a pretty good sense as to what American people wanted as a whole in terms of their entertainment. MGM was also the studio that most eagerly snapped up content like novels and plays on which to base their films. And, as it is now, so it was back then, people liked to go see stories they already kind of know. And back then, it was really paying off for MGM. Three of the ten films nominated for Best Picture in 1939 belonged to MGM. This included the film Ninotchka, which starred Greta Garbo. The film was famously marketed as the film in which audiences would see Garbo actually laugh and also hear her. Because remember, she was a silent star first. Ninotchka was a satire on communism directed by Ernst Lubitsch and was also arguably Garbo's last good film. She had been a just absolute apex movie star during the silent era, but wasn't aging with the film industry. Her voice was not helping. She had an accent. That was considered a bad thing back then. And in fact, she'd only make one film after this. Also by MGM that year was good by Mr. Chips, a film based on the novella of the same name about a teacher looking back on his long career. The film starred Robert Donat as the titular Chips, and he'd win the Best Actor Oscar that year for the role. Probably one of the lesser-known films of this year, it is a year of bangers, remember? It is still considered one of the most inspiring films of all time. And of course, the biggest film, at least historically, I think I'm going to do an episode on it later this year, if not next year. So I'm going to keep this one a little bit briefer than I normally would. But the big film that came out of MGM in 1939, I don't think anyone's going to argue me on this. Wizard of Oz. (laughs) It's it's Wizard of Oz. The film made an international star out of Judy Garland, kicking off her movie star career in the process. She and um, Mickey Rooney became a duo. She had already been in their studio for a few years. This was the thing that like kicked her up to his level. They had them starring in films together. Like this was the thing that like really, really did it for Judy Garland. To this day, it's a staple of cinema, and at least when I was growing up—admittedly that was a minute ago—it was hard to find someone that hasn't seen The Wizard of Oz. The film was also directed by Victor Fleming, who would direct arguably the biggest film of the year and potentially of all time, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Wizard of Oz would also end up, down the line, being a major player in normalizing old movies playing on television. MGM also flexed their pantheon muscles this year when they released the film The Women, which was one of the first films to feature a cast of only women. Very few studios at this time would have had the talent in their roster to be able to assemble that many women who could actually act opposite each other. And MGM, luckily for them, was one of them. Men, they had plenty of because it was, you know, Hollywood, but definitely not a lot of studios had that many highly talented women on their rosters. The film also showed a rising trend in Hollywood, which was the strong independent women that you'll see throughout this entire year in all these films. There's not a lot of weak ingenues in 1939. There were, but they were not amongst the top films of the year. While MGM was a peak producer of musicals and rom-coms, Warner Brothers to the Northeast was doing what you can almost consider the opposite. In 1939, Warner was known for its gangster pictures. While not nominated for an Oscar, the best one released by them this year was probably The Roaring Twenties, which, fun fact, entered the Criterion Collection recently. It also happens to be one of the best gangster films ever made, according to AFI. The film starred Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogart and was about three men who attempt to make a living during Prohibition after returning from World War I. Warner was also the first studio to make an anti-Nazi film, which came out in 1939. As the Warner Brothers were Jewish themselves and the sons of Polish immigrants, they were obviously deeply affected by what was happening in Europe in 1939 and frustrated by the American stance of just let them fight it out. Because of that, the studio defied the U.S. policy at the time, which was to avoid taking sides on the issues that would eventually, you know, be World War II. The film they did to defy this was called Confessions of a Nazi Spy, and it took a firm stance against Hitler and Germany and just that whole mess to just completely oversimplify. Other films had done this before, or alluded to it at least, but this was the first American film to go, um, hey, the Nazis are kind of not doing awesome stuff over there. Of course, with a modern lens, this feels very much like a no dust stance to take, but before the outbreak of World War II when this film released, it released, I believe, in May of 1939 and World War II broke out in September, it was a tad controversial. So much so that any further blatantly anti-Hitler films were banned from U.S. release because the reason the Hayes Code, which was the censorship office gave, was that it was quote unquote critical of a world leader, which is just crazy. This is the kind of stuff I reflect back on. People are like, censorship's crazy. Like, no, it was a lot worse not that long ago. Anyway, this was, of course, the stance until the U.S. eventually entered the war in 1941. And this film also got all U.S. films banned in Germany. But that was going to happen anyway, let's be honest. And was heavily protested by the German people. Also, if I'm remembering correctly, I this is off, it just popped into my head as I was sitting here recording. I believe Jack Warner, who was the head of production at this time of, of the Warner Brothers, I believe he got threatening mail delivered to his home over the production of this film or after it was released or at the very least it was in post. And it was like the blueprints of his house or something. And they're like, we're going to blow up your house, I think was the illusion that was made in it. I could be wrong, but I feel like that's correct. If, if this is still in here, I fact checked it and, it. and that was indeed what happened. The greatest star at Warner Brothers at this time, though, was Betty Davis, who starred in Dark Victory in 1939, which was the Warner's only Best Picture nominee for that year. Davis was the poster child at this time for that strong, independent woman, and just in addition to being one of Warner's biggest stars, she was actually one of the biggest stars in the whole world. Davis had also won an Oscar the year before, and therefore was on a career high throughout 1939. Hell, she even played Queen Elizabeth I in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, so they've got her playing like these very strong, ballsy women. No pun intended. Dark Victory, though, was the performance out of the four Davis would give in 1939 to bestow upon her another Oscar nomination. In the film, she plays a young socialite that is diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and must decide how to live out her final days. Davis is transcendent in the film, which serves as a cornerstone of her career. As I mentioned earlier, at this time, the Hollywood studios owned just about every aspect of filmmaking. 1939, while being a high point, would also be the year that Hollywood would begin losing that hold. While the hammer wouldn't fully fall until nine years later, in 1938, Paramount Pictures, the only surviving Hollywood studio actually in Hollywood today, had the most to lose if this decision went through, as they had the most theaters. This lawsuit was known as the Paramount Decrees, which were filed by the Department of Justice against the eight major studios. According to the DOJ, the Supreme Court had found that these studios, quote, had engaged in a widespread conspiracy to illegally fix motion picture prices and monopolize both the film distribution and movie theater markets, which, of course, yeah, they were. (laughs) Paramount at this time had barely survived the Depression, but despite that they managed to turn out a few hits, they were probably the lowest performers of the of the eight major studios at this time. But their their highlight was probably the film Midnight, which was Claudette Colbert's first starring role. Unfortunately for them, not a lot to be stoked about 1939 other than dealing with lawyers and praying the government wouldn't break them up. Back north at Universal, where about three years earlier their founder Carl Lemley and his son had been removed from power after one too many film flops, was still struggling to regain the financial viability that it had enjoyed with the monster movies of the 1930s, the early 1930s. Their major hit for 1939 wasn't a small one, it was Son of Frankenstein, which saw three pretty decent stars teaming up for a monster movie of all things. Basil Rathbone, most famous for playing Sherlock Holmes, played Dr. Frankenstein, Boris Karloff returned to play the monster, and in a surprise move, Bela Lugosi played Igor, uh, Dr. Frankenstein's assistant. Upon its release, the film got better than normal reviews for a monster movie. Even back then, they were considered, you know, cheap entertainment. It also ended up being one of the highest grossing horror films on its first run. Usually it took a couple of tries for them to really make their money back. This happened on the first try. The film also provided some new life, no pun intended, into the monster franchise that led to a second major wave at Universal that would also include The Wolfman, which came out like two or three years later. I can't remember if it was 1941 or 1942. I think it was 1941 one. Back in Hollywood proper, Columbia had the luck of having one of the best directors of the era on their roster in Frank Capra. 1939 saw the release of one of his best films, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which starred Jimmy Stewart in one of his first major film roles. The film also represented a shift in the content being made as the film asked deeper questions like what was a country's responsibility to its people versus the films of a few years ago that were focused more on basic human needs, like how am I going to feed my family? So these bigger philosophical questions are being asked versus, you know, just like what I would consider like caveman problems. Like, where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to live? Like those kinds of things. The U.S. government was not super thrilled about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington being a thing, despite the fact that it was a comedy more than anything else. And they actually just weren't fans of Hollywood in general at this point, because by this point, the government had realized what a powerful influence film could have. Have on people. According to Frank Capra, some U.S. senators even offered the studio $2 million to just shelve the film altogether. But Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, in a move against what David Zasloff does at Warner Brothers Today, declared that they made a film and films are meant to be seen and therefore needed to be released. So the film came out to absolutely great acclaim, was nominated for Best Picture and launched Jimmy Stewart's career as well. So that's the other big thing is this this was a huge launchpad year for movie stars that people still consider. They're like, name a movie star. You're probably naming somebody. You know, if you're not doing like Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks, if you're like name an old movie star, you're probably naming somebody who was very prominent during this time. Just a few blocks away from Columbia was RKO, who had one of their rare successful years in 1939. If you remember all the way back, I think it was like my fifth or sixth episode ever. We talked about RKO. RKO had a rough ride for the most part. But RKO got a Best Picture film that year with the romantic drama Love Affair. The film famously features a lover's rendezvous at the top of the Empire State Building, but one of them is injured along the way and they lose each other for a time because cell phones didn't exist. The film was revolutionary in its day as it featured adultery as a major focal point during those heavily censored years of film, and some critics believed that the film actually glorified the act instead of treating it as the selfish trashy, shitty thing that it is. Not to let my real-life opinion slip in too much. But other than their Best Picture nomination, two of RKO's greatest films ever also came out in 1939. First was Gunga Din, an action-adventure film which was originally slated to be directed by Howard Hawks, but he lost the gig after his 1938 film Bringing Up Baby, which was a screwball comedy, went wildly over budget. How you do that in a screwball comedy, I have no idea. Instead, George Stevens was given the helm of this big-budget saga that rewrote the rules for the action film for a generation. The film also gently represented to audiences in the States things that were going on in Europe without actually saying so. Charles Lofton also played the Hunchback of Notre Dame for RKO and one of the better adaptations of the novel to that point. It also carried a message of freedom over oppression, which, as I mentioned, was a rising trend in Hollywood films at this time. 1939, arguably, was the last of RKO's great years, as it marked the end of the studio having Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire on their roster, as well as William Dieterle, who directed Hunchback, but also Juarez, which starred Betty Davis. While it was RKO's best year ever, probably, it overall paled in comparison to some of the other studios' outputs. Just the little baby studio in 1939, it was only about four years old because it had just mashed a bunch of companies together, 20th Century Fox began trying to make a name for itself with Daryl F. Zanuck as its VP of production. Zanuck was responsible for sourcing some of the studio's greatest talent, including Betty Grable and Tyrone Power. Behind the camera, one of his greatest grabs was director John Ford. Over about 18 months in this time frame, Ford shot a string of solid films for Fox, including Young Mr. Lincoln, which starred Henry Fonda and portrayed the future president as a trial lawyer coming into his own. The film treated Lincoln less as a godlike figure, as had been seen in the past, and more as a complex man becoming his own person. This level of nuance was something that was just beginning to kind of be a thing that the uh, the filmmakers could handle at this time, before it was a little bit more big and showy and flashy. Now we're starting to see some of those those nuances. Despite all this work, what Ford wanted to make more than anything was a big budget western about a stagecoach starring a little-known B-movie cowboy, but no studio would touch it. After being denied full funding from every studio in town, Ford ultimately got his money from Walter Wenger, a rare for this era independent producer in Hollywood, though he did partner with United Artists to get it distributed because you still needed a big studio to do that because they owned them all. With Stagecoach, Ford managed to revitalize the tired tropes of the Western characters, bringing new depth to a tired genre. Of course, as we just discussed the film a couple of weeks ago, you probably remember that this film was a smash hit. It launched the career of John Wayne as a bona fide movie star and also was nominated for Best Picture. Independent producers were visibly on the rise starting around this year. When you look at the studios responsible for creating three of the year's quote unquote best films. One of these movies was, of course, Stagecoach, and the next was produced by comedy king Hal Roach, who'd before this year discovered Thelma Todd and famously Laurel and Hardy. Completely stepping out of his past as a comedic shorts king, Roach produced the drama of Mice and Men based on the John Steinbeck novel To Great Success. Another one of the producers doing this was Samuel Goldwyn, who'd left MGM several years prior to 1939 and gone fully independent. He assembled a crack team that included director William Wyler to produce a film based on a novel that was until this point believed to be unfilmable, and that was Emily Bronte's *Wuthering Heights. The film starred Laurence Olivier in his breakout film role on This Side of the Pond. Of course, before this, he'd made Hollywood films. He'd made films in the UK. He was a big stage actor, but this catapulted him into full movie star status, pretty much. But of course, nobody quite nailed being an independent producer in 1939, quite like David O. Selznick. After working for both MGM and RKO, Selznick decided to go out on his own, building his studio just a block or two from former home MGM. You can walk it very easily, by the way. There he erected a mini-studio that ran actually very similarly to MGM. Selznick is definitely one of the best film producers to have ever lived. He definitely released his best film of all time in 1939, and it also happened to be the year's best picture winner, Gone with the Wind. In one swing, he had gotten all the prestige he'd been working for up to that point. We've discussed Selznick a little bit here and there over the years, but in case you don't remember, he was notoriously hands-on, something directors historically hate, so he's a little bit difficult to work with, but, you know, he he wanted his prestige, and he was willing to get that pretty much. I don't know why he didn't just direct, but that's neither here nor there. One thing he had no control over for Gone with the Wind was who would ultimately play the male lead, Rhett Butler, as that part was ultimately given to Clark Gable as a part of a deal with MGM to distribute the film. Selznick needed them to distribute the film, so his hands were tied. The role of Scarlett O'Hara went to a relative unknown named Vivian Lee, which was a risky move that luckily for Selznick worked out. He was a notorious gambler. This was not a new, new risk for him. Hattie McDaniel also rounded out the cast as Mammy, and for that role, she became the first African-American actress to win an Oscar. Selznick was famously on the set of Gone with the Wind every single day, and they shot on location for a lot of it, often calling cut-on takes over the head of director Victor Fleming. George Cukor had been the original director for Gone with the Wind, but had been fired only a few weeks into filming. Fleming had, of course, directed Wizard of Oz as well, and therefore I think we can all agree is probably the MVP director of 1939. To this day, the three hour plus juggernaut of a film is the highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation. I think it made, if not three billion dollars, then just under. If you consider 1939 money to 2024 money, it made a shitload of money. (laughs) At the heart of its story is the struggles of women holding up the home front during the Civil War, not men really, which also kind of gave audiences a look at what was to come with the now waging war. Gone with the Wind released in December, and World War II had been declared back in September. The film also pushed boundaries of censorship with its inclusion of the word, wait for it, damn, damn. Despite World War II having broken out across the pond, Hollywood ended 1939 on its highest possible note, once some claim it never reached again. The Oscar ceremony for 1939 occurred on February 29th, 1940, complete coincidence by the way, to celebrate the best of the record-breaking year they just had. Of course, Gone with the Wind took home nine Oscars that night, including Best Picture and of course Hattie McDaniel's Feet. So with all of that in mind, why was 1939 the best year ever? Well, the films that we covered today were only a sliver of the 365 films that Hollywood made that year, which is also one of their highest outputs for this era. At the time, it just felt like another year. Film was thriving. And it was making a ton of money. The quality was definitely noticeably better. But I don't think people looked at it like three years. Well, I mean, the war was going on. I doubt they were worried about that so much. But this is something that's been realized as time has gone by, that this was a very, very high point. And, you know, that tends to be the way you always look back and be like, oh, that was actually a really good time of my life. The same is the case for film. The year saw more varied roles for women, as well as a seismic shift in the types of stories being told, and one of the first major years for Technicolor films. These are all major leaps forward in storytelling, in technological advancement, just in you know diversity. You know, it's it's a lot of just a, a lot of good stuff happening in 1939 for film. The other stuff, trash fire. But for fi- if we're just ignoring everything else, all the horrible things happening in the world, in 1939. Just look at the movies. <laughs> Just this very narrow sliver of the world that I look at every week. It was a pretty good year. It was just a culmination of advanced sound, color, and just peak studio output. It was probably the last high point of Hollywood's golden age, but what a way to go out. This year was also quote-unquote the best because it was one of the last before the world at large suffered major generational trauma in the form of World War II. The U.S. would ultimately enter the war in very late 1941 and several major Hollywood talents left Tinseltown to fight in the war. This loss of talent would also affect the output of the industry. And they were also making a lot more propaganda films. They were helping the U.S. government. And just as a result, priorities are elsewhere. Quality is going to decline. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Film, as much as it pains me to say it, isn't everything. At the end of the day, it's it's entertainment. We're making movies. We're not saving babies. After the war, the studios were also slammed with three major blows. In 1949, the studios were told that they had to separate from their theater chains, lessing the control they had on the market at large, which of course affected how much money they got. Then, this pesky thing called TV began appearing in households the world over, and suddenly people weren't leaving their homes to go to the movies, which affected how much money they were making. And just a few years after that, Congress would start rooting through Hollywood, looking for supposed communists in a move that would destroy the quality of content on cinema for a decade. So 1939, if anything else, represents this perfect year before a lot of things went to shit for at least a decade or so, creatively speaking. But that was all in the future. At the time, it was 1939, and it was the best year ever. God is my- God is my witness, they're not going to lick me. I'm going to live through this, and when it's all over, I'll never be hungry again. No, nor any of my folk. If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I had my in house cold brew again today, though I did have to run to. Whole Foods, I decided to be weird and go to Whole Foods for some reason. I thought there'd be cooler, like, iced coffee there. There wasn't. Uh, Pretty much the same old stuff or something that costs $15. And I'm not paying $15 for a jug of cold brew. I will pay $5 for a jug of cold brew. That will last me two weeks. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, it was the best year ever. 1962. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.